This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. China, the economic success story of our generation, a nation whose leader has announced big ambitions for its people when he declared, it is time to take center stage in the world. We have debated China several times before as an emerging military power, as a model of capitalism, as America's rival. This time, we want to take on China's soaring status as a major power across several dimensions. The use of questionable trade practices and espionage to get out in front of Silicon Valley. Use of data and technology, an initiative to create Chinese-made global economic infrastructure so that all roads will lead back to China. There is so much to discuss that for this topic, we are using our unresolved format. Five debaters, each flying solo, saying yes or no to a series of three resolutions, one after the other. In other words, instead of one debate, we're doing three right in a row. From Intelligence Squared U.S., this is Unresolved, the Techonomic Cold War with China. I'm John Donvan. For this debate at Symphony Space in New York City, our debaters are... Michelle Flournoy, Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense under President Obama and co-founder of the Center for a New American Security. Ian Bremmer, President and Founder of Eurasia Group and author of the book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. Yasheng Huang, Professor of Political Economy at MIT and author of several books in Chinese and English, including Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics. Parag Khanna, founder and managing partner of FutureMap and author of The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. And Susan Thornton, senior fellow at the Yale University Paul Tsai China Center and former acting assistant secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the State Department. Susan speaks French, Russian, and Mandarin Chinese. So we have a full panel of diplomats and best-selling authors here, and let's get on to the debate. A technological powerhouse with big tech firms like Alibaba, China has nine of the world's top 20 companies. Our first resolution is this. The next Silicon Valley will be in China. The first debater is Michelle Flournoy. I declare yes because China sees itself in a strategic competition with the United States, both economic and military, and it is doing everything in its power to eliminate our technological edge. China has a clear plan and is making massive investments. Beijing's five-year plan, its most recent one, focuses research and development on a number of technology areas, including things like aerospace engines, satellites, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. Its annual research and development spending has increased by 71% over the last five years, and its defense spending has tripled in the last 10 years. It has established a doctrine of civil-military fusion, which means any advances made by private companies in China have to be shared with the Chinese military. And it's undertaken a massive and sustained campaign of cyber theft of our intellectual capital, our property, totaling hundreds of millions of dollars. If you look at its investment in the fundamentals of an innovation ecosystem, those are strong too. People. China has 4.7 million recent STEM graduates. That's graduates in science, technology, engineering, math, versus about a half a million in the U.S. 
funding. China's share of venture capital funding globally is now roughly on par with that of the U.S. and access to data. 800 million internet users. I'm sorry, almost... Michelle, your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yesheng Huan, on the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare? Yes or no? Uh, I declare yes. Yeah, not only do I declare yes, I actually know where that Silicon Valley is going to be located. Uh, <laughs> it is going to be in a city called Shenzhen, across from Hong Kong. By the local level, Shenzhen is actually very similar to Silicon Valley. It is an immigrant city. It draws talents from the rest of the country as well as from the rest of the world. We have had a number of uh, graduates from MIT who have started enterprises in that region. The other thing that we need to be mindful of is science and technology are a function of creativity, talents, and intelligence, but they are also extremely expensive and costly. At a time when this country is not investing in science and technology, somebody else has to do it. And so far, it is China that has been investing very heavily in science and technology. And then if you look at IP, yes, it is true that it is a problematic situation. It is improving. But the other thing is that the new area is data. IP is not as important in big data as it is in other areas. I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. Our next speaker will be Prakhana. On the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare, yes or no? I vote yes, but I should have voted no because you got the tense wrong. China already has the next Silicon Valley. China already has half the world's most valuable companies. It already leads in augmented reality, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, drones, mobile apps, 5G, and even bike sharing. When I pull out my iPhone, millennials in Asia laugh at me. They think it's garbage compared to the Xiaomi phones that they use that have 40 megapixel cameras, batteries that last for two days, and are actually waterproof. Last year, the Hong Kong stock exchange beat out the New York Stock Exchange for the number of IPOs. You have government support, just like Silicon Valley has its origins and support from the defense sector in the United States, so too, of course, does China. The Made in China 2025 campaign is only going to accelerate in the wake of the trade war as they seek to protect themselves from any technology areas where the U.S. wants to cut off uh, supplies. Sovereign wealth funds from around the world are also investing in Chinese tech. So why is China already the next Silicon Valley? Because both China and the rest of the world have made it that way. Thank you very much. Susan Thornton, on the resolution, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. How do you declare? Well, it falls to me to declare no. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm going to have to use some qualifiers because these are strong arguments. But Silicon Valley is not in California. It's not in China. It's a state of mind. Do you know that 75% of the tech workers in Silicon Valley are foreign-born? You're not going to get that kind of an ecosystem in China. You're not going to get it in Shenzhen. You're not going to get it in Zhongguansu in Beijing, where all the universities are. Uh, China is starting to close down for its intellectual space. University professors are being told what they can and can't teach. Students are feeling more inhibited about what they can study. There's still a long way to go for China to get to be the next Silicon Valley. Now, it's not to say that we should count them out. They're certainly starting to go further up the innovation ladder. I think this shows why the U.S. has to pour more money into basic research funding, and we should keep our country open to all kinds of foreign-born geniuses and not just stable geniuses. (laughs) Thank you, Susan Thornton. 
One more opening statement to go on this resolution. The next Silicon Valley will be in China. Ian Bremmer, how do you declare yes or no? Yes, but it's not because I'm convinced the Chinese are going to win. It's just because if there is a next Silicon Valley, it's obviously in China. Look at the big $1 billion startups, the tech unicorns such as they are. 42% of those in the world today are in the United States in 2018. 40% are in China. The rest of the world gets the remaining 18%. That's it. Now, to be fair, a lot of that investment is not coming from the entrepreneurs in China. It's coming from the state. And the reason that they are getting advantages right now in places like voice recognition, facial recognition, is not because they have better scientists. It's because they have more data. In five, ten years... Is AI and technology going to look like the space race, where it's a government versus a government, which case China wins, or does it look more like all of these entrepreneurs doing moonshots, most of which fail, some of which are tremendous, in which case the Americans win? But whoever you decide to pick, the next Silicon Valley already is in China. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. Now we move on to a discussion round. The argument against, exclusively in this case from Susan Thornton, um, you say that China's political shutdown is a deterrent to innovation and sharing of ideas. And the, also statist, economic, top-down. Kind so of der- continue with that thought, and let's let your temporary opponents respond to some of what you okay. are saying. We've been through this before with governments trying to pick winners and losers. That didn't work out too well. I think the Chinese have come a long way in trying to develop parts of their economy, but they don't have the ability to support their bottom-up entrepreneurs. I mean, Jack Ma was basically made to step down from Alibaba. Private entrepreneurs have been arrested under the anti-corruption campaign, and a lot of Chinese are trying to move their money out. So the political retrenchment in China is having an effect on the overall future picture for China's development. Let me let Michelle Flo and I respond to the argument from Susan Thornton that China is going to trip over its own feet on this. I think Susan's right to the extent that China's intent to become the technological leader is thwarted, it will be their own government's fault. You know, we have had it in our mind that true innovation happens in our Silicon Valley. It's the moonshots. It's having the benefit of the best research in universities, entrepreneurs who can go after something that nobody ever thought of before. It's that creative process of discovery, whereas China has been excellent at the applications. Once something established, applying it in a thousand different ways. But right now, in terms of intent and resources and momentum, China does have an advantage. Susan, your response to that? I mean, Silicon Valley is these moonshots. It's not this incremental innovation. And, you know, the Chinese say they have a built-in advantage of marketization and scaling. They want the innovation to come from the U.S., from Silicon Valley. That's what they talk about. And they'll do the scaling up. I mean, you figure out who makes the money in that scenario. I think that's something we need to worry about. But I do think there's a qualitative difference in the kind of innovation that you're talking about. I think... Silicon Valley is not going to be replicated in China. Now, Shenzhen is a logistics hub for almost everything that happens in the tech sector, and that also can't be replicated in the U.S. So I'm very worried, actually, about this Techonomic Cold War, which is the title of our piece, because I don't really see how these things can be separated. Ian Bremmer. First of all, you do have big companies like Microsoft and Google that desperately want to maintain lab work jointly with the Chinese because they find that the level of innovation and cutting-edge support that they're getting there is very important. They don't want the Americans to be in a position where they suddenly cut that off. But the other thing I would ask 
Is Silicon Valley really as entrepreneurial and moonshot-like as it used to be? I mean, we're talking about some behemoth companies that are acting like functional monopolies. They're capturing the regulatory environment. Um, Once they get real scale, then suddenly they start acting a lot more like hybrid state capitalist creatures. But if we really ask ourselves what Silicon Valley is today... I think it's not quite what we do our uh, screenplays about. Yesheng? Let's remember that the political repression is all on the social scientists in China. It's not on engineers and technologists. In fact, Chinese scientists enjoy far more academic freedom than their counterparts in the United States. In this country, we face the problems of research in stem cell area. In China, they have just come up with a CRISPR technology application, genetically edited babies. I'm not advocating that, but this is an example to show that political treatment of social science and natural science are fundamentally different. There's a famous book called Lonely Ideas, that documents inventions in the former Soviet Union. Tremendous technological breakthroughs. What they failed to do was connect those inventions to economic development. China is able to do both the inventions as well as connections. MIT professor Yisheng Huang. Will the next Silicon Valley be in China? More coming up from Intelligence Squared U.S. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to our debate tonight. We have five panelists debating a range of resolutions. Our theme is the next Silicon Valley will be in China. I I want to just give Susan Thornton, since you're the one on the barricades here, a chance to respond to the points that you heard. I think there's still an effect of this overall controlling top-down mentality that the government has in the economy, in resource allocation, in the system of local governments, in the tax collection. I mean, it kind of permeates the entire system. And, And what about Ian's point that our Silicon Valley is not so wonderfully entrepreneurial itself? It is true that Chinese work very hard, whether they're in social sciences or natural sciences. They have this 9-9-6 work schedule where you have to work from 9 to 9, six days a week, and you get one day off on Sunday. So that is a concern for sure. You need to step it up. There's a more mundane story of how Silicon Valley got to be what it is. You can't just summarize it as moonshots. The first generation of entrepreneurs who generated wealth through successful companies actually shared that wealth with the engineers who they work with, and then those engineers spun off and started their own companies. And the genie is actually out of the bottle in China, taking into account whatever political repression there may be on social scientists more. The technologists have already moved forward, and you can see that happening with those that have left Alibaba and Tencent have now gone off to spawn five, ten other sets of companies. And so we can't really pretend that it's just about these you know, vertical colonies. The proof of that is the venture capital market. The global venture capital market is $150 billion a year, and China now represents an equal share of that to the United States. That simply could not be the case if you did not have hundreds of very wealthy Chinese entrepreneurs who came out of that first generation of companies now investing in the next generation. In terms of the innovation that a Silicon Valley in China would require, one of the premises of the trade war we're now in is that China has sustained 
uh, its progress on the back of intellectual property theft. Does that dependence on intellectual property theft say that China is not yet ready to innovate on its own, or are we past that point? Michelle? We, we are not past that point. I mean, the two coexist. There's still hundreds of millions of dollars estimated of intellectual property theft that continues to happen each year, Chinese entities stealing from American entities. That said, you also have examples of real innovation and real startups and creativity happening funded by venture capital in China. So the two are coexisting. But the intellectual property theft has not stopped. It continues. But it doesn't mean that they don't know how to innovate on their own. It means that in some areas, they're getting a boost. (laughs) Where they've had trouble innovating, they've tried to get a leap ahead or a leg up by starting with some proven designs and plans. One of the issues that's cooking around this is that China's lead in artificial intelligence comes with the idea that this technology is being deployed by the Chinese essentially to act as a system of big brother, to spy on its people. And my question is, does that kind of technology have a global market? Or you would think that in this country, you would think in Western Europe that that would be anathema and that that would militate against China's ability to be its own Silicon Valley. Who would like to take that? There are places that are dying to have it. There's also places that are killing to have it. And that's I think, part of the issue. We haven't talked about how technology itself is changing. You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when you were talking about big breakthroughs in technology, you were talking about the communications revolution. Today, when you talk about technology and advances, you are talking about enormous, top-down, vertically integrated organizations, either companies or governments, and they're using big data to engage in surveillance. They're using that to make enormous amounts of money and also to ensure greater political harmonization and their own top-down civic society. I think that is a place where the Chinese actually have a significant advantage over the Americans, and it, it is going to change the way we think about Silicon Valley. Susan Thornton, I again, just, reminding people you are a sole no vote on this argument. <laughs> I just want to make the point that most of these technologies are dual use. We were looking at Yale at sort of the export of surveillance cameras and other kinds of systems to the Middle East and found out that most of the exports to the Middle East are coming from U.S. companies. Police in China are exporting uh, DNA sequencers to find out that people who had been put in prison 20 years ago can have now been exonerated because they were not the perpetrator. They have a problem with forced confessions in China. So you can use them for good or ill. If you're using it in Xinjiang, obviously it's terrible and heinous, and we should be very upset about that. But the technologies themselves aren't the problem. It's what the governments are doing with them and how you attack that, because we have a lot of companies that are making similar types of equipment. China is an authoritarian society. If the government doesn't have big data, they have other tools to control the population. And in fact, if you look at the population control program, it was extremely effective and successful in terms of curtailing the fertility rate without any use of the big data and the technology. So this idea that somehow China suddenly has become a big brother country as a result of big data, that just misplaced. It has been an authoritarian country for the last 2,000 years without the big data. We also need to distinguish between access to data and the application of the data. All the applications of the big data have been the result of companies such as Alibaba and Financial and Tencent. But in China, the government has a special access to these data. So you can make technology available to other countries that have privacy protection, that have restrictions on the ability of the government to gain access to the data without 
involving the technology itself. Parag, can you educate people in 20 seconds on the firm Huawei and tell us how it fits into this argument? So Huawei, as many people know, has certainly origins and still strong links uh, to the Chinese government. It is now has a largest share probably in the world of the global telecommunications hardware and equipment market, but that only amounts to 30-something percent. And now that it's exporting those technologies and implementing and installing fiber optic cables, uh, internet hardware, uh, telecom sort of all over the world, there is a pushback against it. At least five or six countries now have now banned Huawei from installing uh, that equipment in their countries. And there's so, a so given its prominence and given what's happened to it, does that support Susan Thornton's opposition to the idea of Silicon Valley happening in China? No, because it's not the only company in the field that China has. It's obviously the leader. And we no longer even make, and this is one of the critical areas that where Shenzhen comes in in terms of hardware, the United States has almost given up on hardware in some of these areas. So only China Chinese companies even make some of the critical hardwares that relate to 5G technologies. Or some European companies do as well, but not American ones anymore. Well, Huawei is the only company that makes every single component of the 5G system across the spectrum. That actually concludes discussion on this resolution. Thank you very much, where the resolution has been, the next Silicon Valley will be in China. And a reminder of where we are, we have five panelists at this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, debating a series of motions on the Techonomic Cold War with China. I'm John Donvan, your host and moderator. Now we move on to our second resolution. The second resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. China's push to create direct infrastructure connections between China and large parts of Eurasia, Africa, and South America. It is already underway, but will it pay off for China? That is the question we are asking Our first speaker is Ian Bremmer. Ian Bremmer, on this resolution, do you declare yes or no? I declare no. I would like to do this. I would like to give you an additional 30 seconds to explain to the layperson what is the Belt and Road Initiative. One of the reasons it's not a trillion-dollar blunder is because they've invested $50 so far, and they've put out loans for 300 So come on, guys. I mean, give them a couple more years before they can make a trillion-dollar blunder. Um, It is um, an enormous set of strategic investments in infrastructure in countries around the world, driven by Beijing, and you could call it the Chinese equivalent of a Marshall Plan, except that democracy is not one of the driving pieces of conditionality. No, I don't think it's a trillion-dollar blunder. First of all, it's marketing genius. You know, you go to Davos and you see a few heads of state, you go to the Belt and Road Summit, and you see more than anywhere in the world except at the United Nations General Assembly, and they're all there to do strategy at the convening of Beijing, who they want to write more checks. That's pretty extraordinary. There are lots of countries in the world that are willing to do more Beijing's bidding politically because the Chinese are the only ones that are able to do long-term strategy and put cash behind it. In Peru, they do about a third their business with the U.S., a third their trade with China, a third with Europe, but because it's the Chinese government, they're doing much more alignment with the Chinese as a whole. You put these things together and you see that it's an extraordinary, not just marketing plan, but a way for the Chinese to develop real political leverage around the world that otherwise they'd have a hard time picking up. Thanks very much, Ian Bremmer. 
Our next speaker on the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. Michelle Flournoy. Michelle Flournoy, how do you declare? Yes or no? I declare no. You have 90 seconds. Because I, I agree that the BRI will enable China to gain a strategic foothold and influence in key countries. What's not yet clear is how successful they'll be, because there has been some backlash generated in some countries. So let's start with the benefits. China has demonstrated that the model can work in places like Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Greece, and it believes that BRI brings them several benefits. First, new export markets, promotion of Chinese currency, tariff reductions, access to new trade routes, and most importantly, as Ian said, political influence. But there has been a backlash. A number of small, debt-ridden countries are now more concerned about the risks of signing up. They witnessed Sri Lanka, who was forced to give China a 99-year lease to a strategic port because they could not pay their debts to Beijing. And so other countries now fear a similar fate. You've seen Malaysia, Maldives, Sierra Leone, Myanmar, and others backing away from BRI projects or trying to demand refinancing. But the real problem is that the U.S. and its allies do not have an answer. We don't have a counteroffer, a viable alternative. Thank you, Michelle Flournoy. On the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. Our next speaker is Yasheng Huang. Yasheng, do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. Yeah. Remember, the question is, that's a finance question. They are talking about political payoff. The Belt and Road program is based on a false premise that you need these massive investment projects to jumpstart economic growth. If that principle had been correct, the countries that today are at the top of the economic pyramid will be countries such as Egypt rather than England. Egyptians were capable of building big projects. Asian Chinese were able to build big projects, the Great Wall, the Great Canal. In fact, if you look at economic research closely, the infrastructures happen after economic growth. They are typically the result of economic growth. And this is the devil of doing social science because very often in social science, actually all the time in social science, two things happen at the same time, and we don't know which one is the cause and which one is the effect. Correlation doesn't mean causation. Much of the relationship between infrastructure and growth is actually correlation I'm rather sorry, than causation. I'm sorry your time is up, but I'm going to be coming back to okay. you because you're a yes vote. On this resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. Parag Kakana, do you declare yes or no? I declare no. The Belt and Road Initiative really began well before it had a name. You know, we used to call it the Silk Roads. And in a way, the process of Asia knitting itself back together through this process of infrastructural connectivity across this vast space of, of Afro-Eurasia, it's actually called Europe, Africa, Middle East, and Asia. And now with colonialism and the Cold War over, the Soviet Union collapsed about 30 years ago. Since that time, this process has been underway. It just acquired a name a couple of years ago with Belt and Road Initiative. But I've personally been backpacking through a lot of those countries for at least 20 years. So it's been going on for a long time, and it's going to continue. In some ways, it's just getting warmed up. Countries are winning and gaining from the trade intensity that is growing through the relationships. I think that China has succeeded more than it even anticipated. It's unleashed this case of FOMO, right, fear of missing out, because now that China has announced Belt and Road, the U.S. U.S. has its USIFDC, Europe has its Asia Connectivity Initiative, everyone is launching connectivity initiatives, everyone is getting involved in infrastructure finance, and that's just going to make sure that the broader process of connectivity succeeds even further. So my punchline on this is Beijing builds lots of roads, but all roads won't lead to Beijing. 
Thank you very much. And to our final speaker on this panel in this round, Susan Thornton, on the resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion dollar blunder. Do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. I think what we're going to end up with actually is a lot of bridges to nowhere. The U.S. had a great idea, too, for connectivity. It was called the New Silk Road. It was supposed to connect Afghanistan with all these other countries in Europe and Russia. And we tried to do these projects, and guess what? No one would pay for any of them. And do you know why? Because they were dumb. They were dumb, and they weren't going to make any money. And nobody wants to pay for projects that are not going to make any money and bridges that are going to lead to nowhere. And a lot of these projects, a high-speed railroad from Beijing to Moscow, are you kidding me? So the Chinese are going around, writing lots of checks. Great. It's an issue of, you know, what system do we believe in? We have market capitalist economics because it produces efficiency. And this is not an efficient set of financial investments, and I think the Chinese are going to end up wasting a lot of money. Thank you, Susan Thornton. So that concludes the opening round on this resolution. Now we move on to a more freewheeling discussion. The resolution being the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. We have three no's and two yeses. Yusheng Hong, I cut you off at a point where I think you were going to continue to be quite interesting. So I'd like to give you uh, another 45 seconds to don't, complete. Don't raise you uh, expectations. Were. You already <laughs> You are already deeply fascinating, but just keep going. No, I, I, the Silk Road was a result of private sector activities, and the private merchants were trading uh, across uh, Euro-Asia, whereas Belt and Road is almost completely a government project. China started out in the 1980s with terrible infrastructures. In fact, in developing countries, the most reliable measure is the length of the railways. If you look at China and India, India, because of the British uh, rule, built a lot of uh, railways. It was the Chinese economy that took off. China only began to build infrastructures in the late 1990s, after 20 years of the economic growth, which provided savings to the banking system, tax revenue to the government, and therefore the government was able to build railways and the highways and other so, infrastructure. It's really following the economic growth rather than jumping start the economic growth. Let me bring in Ian Bremer. I'll come to you next. A lot of this is marketing, and it's effective marketing. Again, only $50 billion has been actually spent. It's like when the Saudis come over and they tell Trump, here's $100 billion we're going to buy in defense. Almost none of that actually happens, but it sounds really good. They can tweet it, so let's not pretend they're spending a trillion dollars. Secondly, do not tell me that politics do not matter as a give-back for what the Chinese are spending. Politics matter I, I will tell you an that. awful lot. Well, don't, well, don't <laughs> expect us to believe it. I mean, you know, maybe at MIT that passes, but in most places... Actually, what you said at MIT will not pass. Okay, uh, okay. I, I didn't think it would, because they have a strong political science department at MIT, which you don't visit. Um, but look, um, no, the, the fact... They visit us. The, the, fact, the, the, fact, the fact is the Chinese are deeply satisfied with the idea that three BRI participants in Latin America have switched their view on Taiwan towards China's. Those things matter for the Chinese, and they're very happy with the return on that investment. Hamanboda Port, Sri Lanka, the Chinese put some money in, the Sri Lankans weren't able to pay it back, the Chinese took it over. What does it mean? They can develop a base in Sri Lanka that they weren't going to get otherwise. Sri Lankans aren't happy with that, the Chinese are. Even economically, they've done a few things right. Go talk to Mitsutakis, Kyriakos Mitsutakis, Harvard-educated, I hate to say it, economist, right, who's going to be the next prime minister of Greece. He would much rather work with the Americans. 
but the Chinese have invested in Piraeus Port in Greece. It's been on time, two specifications, it's created local Greek jobs, and they're now starting to invest in a broader urban center. Thessaloniki Port, it was the French with a Russian oligarch, it's been a disaster. Greeks want to work with the Americans, but they're stuck working with the Chinese. So the fact that the Chinese have this ambition, these plans, a lot of them involving ports, are we looking at a form of colonialism and are we looking at a form of military expansion and colonialism? In other words, will they be building themselves essentially naval bases? Yes and no, in the sense that China wants to protect its supply chains, right? It depends so much on commodities imports from the Middle East, from Africa, and from elsewhere in Asia, and therefore, as those trade networks expand, it wants to protect those supply lines, and therefore, it naturally wants to have not only a coast guard there, but even you know naval vessels and so forth to protect those uh, supply chains and the ports. So you do see a bit of expansionism, but that doesn't make it a new colonialism, because in the intervening centuries since colonialism more or less uh, passed, or in decades, you have sovereignty, you have democracy, you have transparency, you have countries scrutinizing everything that China does and pushing back against it. Even if China wants to do something, like, for example, have submarines and warships and whatnot dock at Hambantota port because now they have a lease on it, guess what? They're not going to be able to do so because the political backlash is so strong because it's not a colonial world anymore. Strategic ROI is why they're doing this. Is the Belt and Road Initiative a trillion-dollar blunder? Our theme is Unresolved, the Techonomic Cold War with China. More debate in a moment. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. Welcome back to our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have five panelists considering a range of topics on the Techonomic Cold War with China. FutureMap founder Parag Khanna responds to points against this resolution. China's Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. In geopolitics, you learn about something called the Malacca Trap. The Strait of Malacca that passes between Singapore and Indonesia is the narrowest maritime choke point in the world. Not only China, but also Japan and South Korea depend on having all of their commodities flow through that narrow channel that they don't control, and almost all of their finished good exports flow through it in the other direction. So it is priceless for China. It is worth $5 trillion to have terrestrial corridors through Central Asia to reach the Middle East and to reach Europe, and they're going to keep on spending. Shipping by maritime route, so there's a belt and there's a road. Confusingly, the road is on the sea and the belt is over the Tian Shan Mountains in Central Asia, and it's going to cost $50 trillion to send those trade routes through there, trust me. But, I mean, I think the question is whether or not the Chinese are going to benefit from this project, and I still say in general that these projects are not profitable, they're not sustainable, and they're going to result in more backlash over time. In a lot of cases, with the throwing their weight around attitude that the Chinese have, it may not work out so well for them. On the sea routes, I think it does make a lot of sense for the Chinese, whether it's for military purposes or not. There is an economic angle there. Michelle Forney. Look, I think the primary motivations for China undertaking this initiative are not economic. They are actually strategic and political. Strategic access to critical minerals and markets, um, alternative trade routes to get out of the Strait of Malacca problem, political influence that may translate into votes in support of their position on Taiwan or South China Sea or something else down the road. And in this current environment, China is the alternative new leader to the United States that you can turn to and rely on for investment in your country to be a force for good. It's not about their economic ROI. It is about the strategic and political ROI. And, and Michelle, is that taking advantage of a perceived American yes, withdrawal? Yes, it's, it's taking advantage of the 
perception that America is turning inward, that we are not as engaged, that we cannot be relied upon to lead and to be a partner and ally. Parag. When the first train started going from China over to Europe about three, four years ago, people were complaining, saying, oh, well, it's full of goods from China that are going to be dumped into European markets. The Europeans have nothing to sell. They're never going to catch up. They're going to be empty. Within three years, the Europeans have mostly caught up, and they're sending lots of stuff back the other way. Most estimates of the trans-Eurasian trade volumes, which are $1.6 trillion today, put it at about $2.5 trillion by 2030. They're doing it because they want to. They're doing it because infrastructure and connectivity enhances their trade, it creates jobs, it diversifies their economies. Yes, sir. The railway shipment is four times as expensive as uh, shipment by sea. So it's, I recognize the point you made. It's not going to be a major transportation mode. It's interesting to hear the comment, $50 billion is a small amount of money. If you look at China's GDP, second largest in the world, on a per capita basis, it's right in the middle of the 198 countries in the world. It's, it's right in the middle. We're not talking about a rich country. It is a middle-income country shelving out $50 billion here, $50 billion there. Sooner or later, it's going to be a $1 trillion investment. So I'm not going to trivialize $50 billion. Uh, at the same time, when China is doing this, Chinese government itself has neglected investing in rural areas, in public health, in, in basic education, and they're spending this largesse on other countries. So, so you're saying it's unsustainable? It's Finance? not sustainable because it's happening at the extreme expense of the domestic investments okay, in public point. health wanna, and public education. I want to let Ian Bremer respond to that point. Uh, a lot of Americans focus on Flint, Michigan and say that how can we possibly be putting aid out internationally when we're allowing people to not have water that's clean in our own backyard? The answer is that we can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. And the Chinese have been saying, oh, we're poor, we can't do anything. fact is they're the second largest economy in the world. They're about to be the largest economy in the world. They've gone from extreme poverty to a middle-income country right now. There's no question there are a lot of people in China that are suffering. I would argue that a lot more of the suffering in China still happens at the hands of political decisions than it does because of economic incapability. The Chinese government as a whole is not particularly sympathetic to either of those conversations. That's not have to be the trade-off between investing in science and investing in education. I'm talking about investing in projects that clearly do not have economic returns. That concludes discussion on this resolution, whether or not the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. As we move on to our third topic, right now we are in the early stages of a trade war with China that didn't exist two years ago. The two presidents, Trump and Xi, say they are trying to reach a deal to call the whole thing off. Our resolution is framed this way. The U.S. and China will both lose the trade war. Our first debater will be Parag Khanna. Uh, let's start with the ways in which China will be a relative loser. And for both China and the U.S., the further you look out in the future, I think the further this will become apparent. Some major shifts in trading patterns really predate the trade war, such as the diffusion of supply chains out of China. A lot of it has to do with the fact that Chinese wages have been rising. So multinational companies, whether American or Japanese or European, have been diverting their labor and their manufacturing work out of China to Southeast Asia for quite some time. Uh, Foxconn, for example, has done so as well. India last year got more foreign investment than China did. 
did. Uh, Southeast Asia got more foreign investment for the last five years. And now, of course, China's industrial policy is alienating a lot of countries, suspicion of Chinese companies like Huawei as well. China is sort of being brought back to earth in that sense uh, through this trade war. Now for the U.S., the case is even more clear-cut in terms of how it's going to lose because most of what the U.S. exports to China can be substituted by others, whether it's semiconductors that China is going to get from Taiwan or South Korea or Japan, soybeans that it will get from Brazil and Argentina, and even now Russia is growing soybeans, airplanes, maybe China will stop buying as many from Boeing and will buy more from Airbus, so the U.S. will also be a loser from the trade war. Thank you, Prague Khanna. Our next speaker on this resolution, the U.S. and China will both lose the trade war. Susan Thornton, how do you declare, yes or no? I'm going to stop being contrarian now. I'm going to go with the flow. Um, But no, I think both countries are already losing the trade war. I do think, though, on a more optimistic note, that if we can pull back from this trade war and get some kind of a deal, there is a possibility that both sides can win. China is in a period of retrenchment from reform. There's a joke going around in China now. Who are two old guys who are going to push China into the modern era? Deng Xiaoping and Donald Trump. They want Donald Trump to push China as hard as possible to re invigorate its economic reform program because they know that the Chinese economy needs to move to the next stage of opening up. And I think the rest of the globe would also benefit from some kind of a deal that we could get as long as we get some progress on these structural issues. Thank you, Susan Thornton. On this resolution, Ian Bremmer, do you declare yes or no? I'm going to declare no. I don't think there's going to be a trade war. I feel very strongly that the Americans and Chinese, for different but overlapping reasons, are going to back down Trump because he doesn't want it to affect the American markets and it hasn't really, except for a little scare in December, and because he wants to show that he personally can do a big deal. And the Chinese, because actually their economy's gotten a little bit more vulnerable and Xi Jinping doesn't want this fight right now. Where the U.S. and Chinese economies were very interdependent, they still are, China's becoming gradually a larger economy than the U.S., but still very far behind on a per capita basis. Yes, we're seeing growth slow in both China and the United States. In China, that's because of debt deleveraging. In the United States, that's because of the Fed and the end of the tax cuts stimulus. So if you ask me to really make a strong call here, are we both going to get hurt by this trade war? At the margins, I think I'd say yes, but overall, I think I'd say no. Thank you, Ian Bremmer. Our next speaker on the resolution, the U.S. and China will both lose the trade war. Michelle Flournoy, do you declare yes or no? I will declare yes. Given the interconnectedness of the two economies, it's really not possible for either country to win a trade war should it continue. Restrictions on trade end up resulting in increased prices and decreased exports for both countries. I think if these tariffs were sustained into the future, there's projections uh, that you'd see reduced U.S. exports, decreased GDP, and also elimination of a substantial number of American jobs. You know, the U.S. does need to challenge China's unfair trade practices, whether it's restrictions on market access, theft of intellectual property, subsidies, extraordinary subsidies to state-owned enterprises. But the tariff war is the wrong way to go. If we were to do this in the right way, the U.S. would go out to all of the other countries in Asia and Europe that have the same issues with China, and we would lead the formation of a coalition to come together to press China to make structural reforms. That's the right way to approach this. Thank you, Michelle Flournoy. And uh, finally, Yasheng Huan, on the resolution, do you declare yes or no? I declare yes. Yeah. It's fairly easy to 
argue why it is hurting China. Trade as a percentage share of the GDP for Chinese economy is about 40%. For the U.S., it's only 26%. So it's hurting China. People tend to think about Chinese imports as hurting jobs in the United States. True, there is some of that, but it is also lowering. Cost of living for poor Americans. Right? There's a book called Made in China, in which the author tried for one year、uh, live on products not made in China, and she found it extremely difficult. That concludes our opening round on this third resolution, and I want to go, since we have four yeses and one no, and that no is Ian Bremmer. I want to go back. Are you arguing that neither the U.S. or China will lose the trade war, or that? One of them won't. Look, they both I, won't, or one of them won't. I'm first of all arguing that they both won't. Right now, I think Trump's backing down. But if you'd gone the Bannon route, where when he was chief strategist in the White House and he said, "Look, we're going to come to blows with the Chinese eventually, but we're more powerful than they are now. If we wait for five or ten years, it's going to get a lot harder. We've got to hit them really hard." I think if that had been the strategy, and the Americans did it with the Europeans, with the Japanese, joined TPP, put together the strongest possible case, I think the Chinese would have backed down. I do think the Chinese are strategically smart about this. So ultimately, you know, they made some mistakes. Xi Jinping—the fact that the Chinese were always saying we're not ready to be leaders—Xi Jinping came out of the box pretty hot, and he said, "No, I'm going to be a leader, and we're going to be the leaders in free trade. And by the way, I'm even going to be leader for life. So I'm going to get rid of all term limits." <laughs> Now that they've seen that the Americans are a little unpredictable and willing to potentially hit them hard in ways that every single one of my co-panelists have admitted, this is hurting the Chinese economy. They're not going to play, and as a consequence, we're just not going to have a trade war. Does the other four of you agree that we're not going to have a trade war, Parag? There's competition, right? I call it tug of war. We're always competing to have the largest share of the supply chain or value creation within our shores, employing our workers,、uh, generated by our companies with our IP, or that we've bought, borrowed, or stolen、uh, from others or built ourselves. Even if you have a resolution next week, let's be perfectly clear, it still continues because whatever hiatus or pause. Or reform、uh, the Chinese may offer. It's going to be very slow to implement, and they're going to make sure that they've locked in benefits to them, but in certain sectors before they actually open those sectors. So it continues even in when not in name. Susan Thornton. We are in some kind of a tech war, and I think that's going to go on long after this, whatever the deal is, and that will continue to have knock-on effects for both the U.S. and the Chinese economies, and it will continue to produce a lot of uncertainty for business. Michelle Fornoy. I look at this through the national security lens, and one of the things that I worry about in the talk of a trade war is feeding hardliners on both sides. So there are now Chinese folks who are very much talking about the U.S. is trying to contain China. Therefore, we should see the U.S. as an adversary. They want to disentangle. Fine, we will disentangle and we will compete and win. One of the ways that you deter this competition from becoming open conflict in the future is you make it too painful for both sides to ever go to war with each other, and that's by staying. Engaged and recognizing that we do have interdependencies that we should actually manage. We have to fight for our interests where they're violated. But you don't want to disentangle. It's not possible, nor is it wise. You have to use interdependencies to try to prevent the competition from becoming conflict. Okay, with four yeses and one no, Ian Bremmer. Again, you're the no. I saw you nodding a lot when Michelle was speaking. So you're agreeing with her. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am, and I'm also agreeing with Susan. But what does it mean to win or lose a trade war? I don't think we're going to end up in a knockdown, dragout trade war with the Chinese. But if we did, 
Oh, it would hurt our economy, but I think we'd win, right? I mean, as the world's largest oil producer and food producer with the world's only global reserve currency and a geopolitical environment that actually is quite stable and a representative democracy that doesn't work super well but is a lot less brittle than Xi Jinping as president for life and no rule of law, the Chinese lose that trade war. I don't know. I think you're assuming that everyone else in the world lines up with us. You know, when the U.S. pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, which, by the way, we created, right, architected and walked away from, every other country decided to go ahead and join it, including the Canadians, Mexicans, and so forth. When we are now trying to push for a bilateral FTA with Japan, they're saying, you know what, why don't you just come back to the TPP framework and let's do it that way. So trade with China matters a lot to almost all of these countries. And we didn't mention one of the winners because it's relative gains and losses, not absolute. Europe, the stuff that China and other Asians feel is now politically volatile, that the U.S. could impose export controls on at any time, like semiconductors and other sorts of things. It's just not, they're just not going to buy them from America anymore. They're going to buy them from Europeans and other Asians. If the U.S.'s goal is to get China to open markets, to stop stealing into intellectual property, and that were to happen, would that not be a win for, 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 the, for US? the United States? Mm-hmm. I think in the current state of the trade war, China loses more than the United States. If we go all the way to the total trade war, China is going to win. Remember, this is a country that went through cultural revolution and great leap forward and survived those economic catastrophes. If you fight extreme wars, the Chinese political system is going to come out uh, at the top just because they have this uh, capability of uh, withstanding massive uh, economic uh, shocks. The trade war has already translated into conflicts in other areas. The director of the FBI, uh, Christopher Wray, described the Chinese government as a threat to the United States as well as the Chinese society. That means Chinese scientists, Chinese visitors, U.S. is curbing the visas on the Chinese uh, students. Graduates from uh, American universities cannot get the visas anymore. The U.S. is also restricting investments by Chinese companies, not just large-scale investments, but also small-scale investments in startups. Right? That's going to hurt the United States. So it's always going to rebound on the United States. If China suffers, the U.S. suffers? There's no question both sides lose. Well, Ian says there's questions. No, no, no. (laughs) If I heard him correctly, he said it's not going to happen. But but if it were to happen, I think both sides would lose. Okay, I'm glad we could bring that discussion to such clarity on that point. Because (laughs) Thank you. Because that concludes debate on this third resolution. The U.S. and China will both lose the trade war. (laughs) So I do now have the results of the votes. On the first resolution which was the next Silicon Valley will be in China. Before the vote, 55% voted yes and 45% voted no. The vote afterwards, 69% voted yes and 31% voted no. On that one, we see a big swing toward the yes side. On the second resolution, the Belt and Road Initiative is a trillion-dollar blunder. First vote, 34% voted yes, 66% voted no. Afterwards... 39% voted yes, 61% voted no, again, a swing toward the yes side. And finally, the U.S. and China will both lose the trade war. The vote was 40% for yes, 60% for no. Afterwards, the vote was 49% for yes, 51% for no, again, a swing to the yes side. If you can keep track of which of these debaters argued yes... (laughs) 
On this round and on all the other rounds, those of you who argued yes, congratulations to you. And again, thank you for what you did for us tonight. It was terrific. And thank you for being a wonderful audience. Good night. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was recorded live at the K Playhouse Theater in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Leah Mathau is chief content officer. Amy Kraft is director of operations and production. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, the Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, the George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and Jennifer and Philippe Salendi. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you.